Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live from Tucson, Arizona. This is the last podcast we are recording before making our way over to the San Antonio and Austin area as our family's RV road schooling remote work adventure continues. I am super excited to welcome Amy Yancey, the Vice President for Development at Boston College to today's show. Hi, Brent. Thank you for uh, having me on. Well, it is great to have Amy here. We were uh, talking about the relatively mild winter that Boston has had. Uh, and given that she moved up to Boston a couple of years ago after spending a bunch of time further south, we're glad that she's, uh, she's still hanging in there. Um, we will get to your time in Boston, but I love asking our guests about your own higher education journey. So take me way back to Amy in junior year of high school and uh, what you were up to at that time. And as you thought about your own college search, uh, what led you uh, to the University of Tennessee and uh, what stands out from your own higher education experience? Um, thanks, Brent. Well, we won't start too far in high school. I was in high school in the 80s. And so some of that is now stricken from the record. But um, you know, I have I to was... say, I've been very into the Cobra Kai reboot. I don't know if you've caught it yet, yes. but it is so good. I and, love it. Uh, so 80s. And so there we go. Uh, yeah, I, um, I've been, it's a, it's a guilty pleasure of mine as well, Brent. But, um, but yeah, I, you know, I changed high schools in, um, in the middle of my, or right before my junior year. And, um, and we moved to Germantown, Tennessee. And I had, you know, a favorite uncle, and I, and I, so I thought I wanted to be an attorney, like my favorite uncle. And I had grown up in Texas, and so, um, so I thought I was going to go to the University of Texas, and, you know, spent a couple of great years in um, in Tennessee. And I really only applied to three schools. Things were very different there. There was, you know, then there was no Common Core. Um, you had to do really paper applications. And I applied to Rhodes, um, which was right there in Memphis and Millsap. So a couple of very different schools from the University of, of Tennessee, but I guess the orange uh, attracted me and the large football program. And, um, you know, I never looked back and, you know, was, was thrilled to um, have the experience that I did. And it was transformative for me. I didn't have a traditional educational experience I ended up needing to put myself through school for part of the time. I worked a lot. I took time off. Um, and, um, you know, and I, you know, it took me a while to find my calling, but I really credit uh, my experiences in college with helping me uh, have the focus that I have today and the experiences and the passion for doing the work that we do. And like everyone, from the University of Tennessee, you immediately decided to move to LA and get into the video game business. That is, um, that's, that's correct. I mean, it was the obvious choice I majored in philosophy. <laughs> Tell me a little bit more about uh, when that first uh, even got on your radar at all uh, and, um, and, and just what that experience was like. Not yeah, typical for the most advancement pros. Sure. So um, there had actually been a group of us in um, in school that had plans to be out in LA. Um, by that point, I didn't. I no longer thought I wanted to be in law school, but I had a good friend who moved to LA and was going to go to law school there. I thought I'd kind of take a year off and figure out what I wanted to do. In the course of doing that, um, I you know I'm. I met a person who was starting up a book publishing company that served the computer game industry. Computer games at, at the time were really geared towards, I'd say, upper middle class professional men, right? Because they had computers in their homes that were powerful enough to run these big games. So we were working on games like The Art of War, Jane Strategy. Um, we did the, the book for the first Microsoft flight simulation fly. Um, but it was really kind of a work for hire. We did the, we kind of created the content and then we took it all the way through print production and uh, sent the books to the fulfillment shops to be packaged with the boxes. And this is so long ago, Brent, that you didn't get your manual on the, you know, on the software or you didn't download it a stream. It was actually a physical book. So it was really great. And I, I learned a lot, but um, 
But when uh, my husband and I um, realized we were expecting our daughter, we realized we didn't want to be on the other side of the country from our families who were still in Tennessee. Uh, his family was in Knoxville. I loved my time there. It was an easy choice to go back to Knoxville. But um, as you alluded to in Knoxville, Tennessee, there, um, there's not a lot of computer game work happening. There was not a lot of publishing. The largest employer was my alma mater. So like many people who've been in, you know, in this business for 20 years or longer, I didn't really know what advancement was, but I had these customer service skills and I'd worked with international clients and I had technology skills and I could do communications work and I was a pretty solid writer and editor. And so I got a job as a communications person in an advancement office at the Institute of Agriculture and uh, spent my first seven years there. I knew very quickly that I wanted to raise money. I just thought it was amazing to hear philanthropists talk about how grateful they were for the opportunity to give their money to something that was meaningful and powerful to them. The first time I interviewed a donor who was thanking me for the gift they had given to the University of Tennessee, um, I, I was hooked. I just wanted to work with people like that all the time. I, I love that you shared that. And we had another guest who just shared something similar. There's, there, is there a greater disconnect between this perception that, well, I don't want to ask someone for money or it's all about asking for money. And then the actual reality of so many people who get inspired as you did early in your career is they're thanking me for helping me make a gift, make an impact, achieve my goals. And I, I like, wh why is there such a disconnect between, I don't want to ask somebody for money to uh, what it's actually like having those donor interactions. Sure. And I, you know, I think we're really, um, we're really conditioned at, at, you know, at an early age and societally to, you know, to not talk about money and to not talk about wealth and to not ask people about their, their wealth. And I think that conditioning takes a lot to overcome. What I will often tell um, kind of emerging career fundraisers who are struggling with knowing when to get to the ask, particularly if they're if they're working with people who we know are philanthropic in other ways is that, you know, people work with wealth advisors all the time, right? And they're used, they are used to talking about their money with people who are, you know, professionally uh, geared towards helping them make decisions. And so this is another kind of wealth decision that people are fortunate enough and that we're fortunate enough that they are able to make and we're there to advise them and we're there to advise them in specific ways that they can do that work meaningful at the, at the institutions that we work for. And then the other thing that I think about is getting caught up on the money, right? I believe in the mission of what we do here at Boston College. Uh, as I said earlier, my educational experience transformed my life and my life would not have turned out the same way had I not had that opportunity. And, um, and I believe deeply in that. So I'm really asking people to help me do that. And, and the money is a, is a tool to get us there. It's such a great way to reframe it and to just be able to confidently challenge people, ask people. It doesn't mean that you don't hear no sometimes or that Sometimes it really is, I've got to ask somebody for money, but um, hopefully it's really asking people uh, more about what kind of impact they want to have and how you might be a conduit to make it happen. Yeah, and, I, and I'm really pragmatic too. And we know that people, people, when they are asked why they gave, they say, because somebody asked me and we know that the, the thing that correlates to being able to execute on that mission uh, most directly is the number of asks that you make. So respectfully, you never want it to be transactional or you, or you don't want the transaction to supersede the lifelong relationship that your alumni or your families or other philanthropists have with your institution, but it's okay to ask and we should be respectful of their time too. If they've taken the meeting, they want to know why we're there and at the point at which we need to ask, we need to go ahead and, and uh, be respectful of that and honor their time and their intention. Well, you don't work in the sector for as long as you have, having made as many asks uh, directly or that you've been a part of. So I have to ask, have you, do you have any stories you can share of asks that have gone really well or asks that have gone completely off the rails, which are usually the, the, the most fun stories? Uh, just curious on either side, if anything strikes you as being really good or really challenging. Oh, that's, you know, that's such... Um... 
That's such a great question. And um, I actually, my favorite gift kind of relates to one of the other things that I, you know, that I tell people, which is we do a lot of research and we think we know a lot of things, but we shouldn't be assumptive about what we know. Um, we really need to do the good, you know, the good foundational work to know and understand where donors are coming from and what motivates them. And, um, and I, so I say, you know, you should treat everybody that you're interacting with as just good customer service background that I come from, right? As if they were gonna be a really high-end donor. And um, I won't say what institution, but one of the institutions that I work for, one of the administrative assistants, um, her, you know, her partner was, um, was doing research in the institution's library. She worked for, um, you know, for one of the administrators and we had, you know, kind of a casual hallway relationship. And, um, and she said that they wanted to do something for the university because they'd had such a good experience. And we went and visited them and it was a large six figure gift, you know, from somebody who um, was in an administrative role. They, it, it was an estate gift. So um, because they had been treated well and they had a meaningful experience with the institution and, um, and certainly the person who was in that chief position you, you know, you hope that nobody would would not want to go make that visit or, or you know, but it, it paid off to do it. And it was um, and it was just a wonderful affirmation that that it's important for us to represent our institutions with everyone that we work with, including our you know, our own internal audiences. Well, it links very well to a comment that you made um, when we were doing our pre-work around uh, this idea that if you could sort of wave a magic wand and change one thing about the advancement sector, what would it be? And you said humility. And I think that's reflected in the story you just shared, which is you, you said, we don't know as much as we think we do. How do we sort of stay humble? And, and so I, I just like to kind of unpack that a little bit because there's, um, there's a balance between, you know, being confident, assertive, aggressive, but also staying humble. Yeah. Um, that, you know, I really truly mean that. I think that we do, we do need to do our fundamentals. We are, um, we have gotten very good in this profession in doing our work in systematic ways. You know, we're at different places and in different institutions, but our really mature fundraising institutions can almost be like like an engine, and um, and we can really pass over opportunity, and um, and we can pass over people. And they can, you know, they can kind of get left behind. I think one of the most important lessons for me is that I've never gone on a joint visit with another fundraiser at any level of the organization or any other faculty member or university leader where I didn't learn something from that individual, right? And so um, so that, you know, that can be surprising that, you know, I, if, if we were traveling, I would be trying to make room for some visits that might be more kind of early discovery qualification. Um, and because it's always interesting to see how people approach their work and you hope that they can learn from you. But as leaders, we also need to, we also need to remember that, um, that there's a lot of talent on our teams and that our our alumni and donors are so very smart too, right? And they um, and they have a lot to offer and we, we need to take the time to listen. I'm curious how that influences the, the language or the words that we use to describe um, donors or prospects. And I don't wanna be presumptuous. I don't know about you know, the inner workings of, of how you all are operating today, but but I do think, and, and we're probably guilty of this as a, as a vendor partner as well, is uh, you know, we're, we're so focused on trying to bring more science, right? bring more analytics, try to bring as much automation as possible because we only have so much time in the day. And we know that there are more, I'm gonna say it, more good prospects out there than we can get to. Yeah. Um, but that also might mean that we run an algorithm, spit out a score, and then we decide that these are bad prospects. And I, I just wonder even the language of, good prospect, bad prospect. Is that a problem for the sector? Because it's really possible that the gift you referenced earlier, somebody would have done research and said, that's a bad prospect. Or maybe they would have said, that's not a good prospect. And we're wrong. And there are enough anecdotes that 
surface where we just cannot be, a, no matter how much data we have at our disposal, we're never going to be as good as maybe we think we are. And, and I'm just curious how you think about that sort of language. Yeah, it, it's a great point. And it's, you know, I, I catch myself doing it. It's something that I have, um, that I've coached others on that we need to be really careful internally and externally about using that word like prospect, prospect manager, right? It is shorthand for the work that we do, but most of our quote unquote prospects wouldn't want to think that they were managed. And so, um, so it's really important that, and I almost always try to say prospective donor, even in, um, even in shorthand rather than just kind of shorting it to, to prospects so that it's mm -hmm. clear that what we're talking about is somebody who might engage philanthropically with us. Mm -hmm. So I think there's the one piece of it where that, yes, the language, you know, the language helps bias this. And I am, I am a huge proponent of data-driven decisions as an organization. I think we're going to, um, you know, emerge whatever emerging from the pandemic looks like, uh, most likely K-shaped, and we're going to continue to have to make really strong, um, kind of give really strong rationales behind making investments, you know, uh, like we did after 08 and 09 in our business. And so we're going to have to be smart. We're going to have to have a really high return on the investment. At the same time, you can't replace the human piece of what we do. And, um, and it's important that we don't. And it speaks a little bit to what I was talking about earlier about not taking any single transaction, any single data point, and, um, and not really applying a thoughtful lens to that, to the extent that you have the bandwidth to do that. And so, um, so I always like to say, you know, um, no never means no, right? It means not right now. And when we think about, or if we kind of surface disqualify people from a call, that's that's not right this minute because there are people maybe that it's more pressing for us to talk to. And if somebody ever tells me no, I don't think that that means, unless they said, I don't want to, you know, I never want to give a gift to your institution. They don't. They mean, this isn't the right gift. This isn't the right time. Uh, this isn't the right amount. And you need to make sure you're asking those follow-up questions so that you know um, how to get it better the next time. Do you have any examples, don't mean to put you on the spot too much, but do you have any examples where the initial reaction was no or not right now, or this isn't right the right fit, but that with you know, ongoing conversations, repackaging, repositioning, somebody did come back around and, and, and was in a position to step up and make a meaningful contribution? Yeah, I had a, a great example of that um, at, you know, at a former institution um, came on board and, you know, um, ended up overseeing somebody who had been there. She'd probably been there about a decade, but she was towards, you know, she was getting close to, um, no, yeah, she, she spent her last 20 years in advancement and she was getting, you know, she'd been there about eight years. And so about the end of my time, she was about ready to retire. And right before she retired, one of her first visits came through with a big estate gift, a seven figure estate gift. And, um, and it was one of those where when she was on the West Coast, she would call on him and he was always friendly and he engaged as a volunteer and he said at some point you're going to be in my estate plans, but she could never get him to commit, but she, you know, she stuck with him. She wasn't the only one I called on him a time or two, you know, several people met him at various events. So he was, he was pretty well connected to various ad advancement professionals on the team there, but um, but she called me and she said, you are not going to believe who documented their estate gift. Because it had been, it had been like seven years or something. And uh, do you think part of this I concern was, was part of this concern, if I, if I say yes, if I document it, then I'm not going to have people visiting me all. I mean, was there like an element of wanting kind of that, that relationship management to persist? I am not going to lie, Brent, there are people like that in the, in the world. You know, we know the people who love to have lunch, love to check in, love having somebody on kind of speed dial when they want to check yeah. in on something that they read. But I really don't think that was it. I really think, you know, he was, uh, he was in a more speculative business and he wanted to wait till he was closer to retirement to kind of maximize what he thought he was gonna be able to do. And he was also just really busy, right? And so he just never really had time to sit down and be thoughtful about it. 
um, and they weren't just excuses. And, um, and my good friend and colleague, you know, didn't take them as excuses, but I think she thought she was going to retire without seeing that gift come in. And um, so, you know, that, that's just a classic example. And he was not an annual donor. He was not a major donor. I mean, he had said it would be a sizable estate gift when he was ready to do it. And so there was, there was not a lot to kind of kind of keep us on the line, so to speak, but it, you know, it paid off because of the relationship. That's a great story. And I'm curious, as you transitioned from the University of Tennessee, you spent some time at Penn State, you spent almost uh, over seven years at University of Virginia. There are a lot of folks who tend to get started in the advancement space at their alma mater, and that was your situation. Um, what is it like going from selling a mission that you benefited from, that you felt was transformative in your life, where you could speak about every building and the key programs and the mission and the impact so authentically because you lived it, and then made the move both to Penn State or UVA and had to sell somebody else's mission. And I know that access to higher education drives you and that drives a lot of our guests. And so maybe it was just getting excited about access to higher education, whether it's Penn State, UVA, Boston College, or your alma mater at the University of Tennessee. Was that a challenging transition? So, you know, it was, and I had a wonderful experience at, at Penn State, and if I have any regrets, it's that I, that I didn't get to be there longer, but, um, but at the time, single mom, I was just too far away from family who was still down and, um, in Tennessee and even, even further away, and, um, but it wasn't, because I spent those first seven years of the, maybe almost 10 that I was at the University of Tennessee in ag, I was really connected to the land-grant mission, but I kind of left being in that applied science world and land-grant mission to go work at the University of Tennessee libraries for a, you know, for a phenomenal dean, and there was a service and access component to the work that librarians do that's just it's hard not to beam over, right? And so I followed a dean to, to Penn State initially. And so I was working with the same dean. I was working, I mean, librarians are the experts that the experts go to when they're stumped and they need to find information. So I just worked with a, with a wonderful group of people there and that was really, really easy. And it was, it was tough to leave um, Penn State, but likewise, when um, when I realized it wasn't going to work out, kind of geographically, it was, you know, Penn State's State College is not the easiest place to get in and out of when you're traveling, and and some things like that that were just logistically challenging. And I had the opportunity to talk to the University of Virginia. It it was for a cause based. Um, I've always been driven by by mission, and there was some real overlap in the kinds of challenges. That, uh, that you have to overcome to fundraise for a library when it's not a school and an academic fundraising environment that were similar to the opportunity at Virginia. And the common challenge that we hear, uh, having worked with uh, a variety of different university libraries and also broader uh, you know, units around campus is there's no natural constituency. On one hand, everybody's uh, a prospective donor. And on the other hand, nobody's a prospective donor or maybe has that sense of, I don't know, obligation, obligation, or just by default, of course, I'm going to support my alma mater is one thing. I'm, I'm going to support the library is something very different. So what was it like um, navigating that? And, and certainly it sounds like you did so very successfully at UVA. It, yeah. So, I mean, so navigating that is, um, it is really challenging and all or none or neither one of those are tenable situations. So, um, so you, have to, you have to have a really good marketing stance, right? Um, because you, have to, you, you can't just stay within your own donor pool. You need to do some word of mouth work. You also know that you've, you've got materials that are, you know, that are supporting every possible discipline under the, under the sun. You know, somebody who's passionate about cooking might be really excited to hear that you have, um, you know, a really remarkable vintage cookbook collection and you would, you'd be surprised at how many people really get close to that. At, at Virginia, um, the challenge was the same, but the cause was a little bit different. They wanted to renovate the rotunda. They wanted to emphasize fundraising for the Jeffersonian grounds. And, um, and there was a really, you know, particular challenge with that piece 
because UVA is, was so decentralized, they're not as much now. There's a lot more hybrid and cooperative fundraising now, but at the time they were very much foundation driven. They hadn't really uh, focused heavily on central priorities. And then on top of that, there was um, there was some real cultural tension between kind of the glorified story of the historic grounds and Jefferson's role in finding the university and this beautiful UNESCO World Heritage Site, and the fact that it you know it was built by enslaved laborers, and so um, it was exciting to be able to go and restore a beautiful place, to think about the the real history of a place like the university, but to also know that we needed to work together as a community to kind of grapple with a, with a history and a legacy that didn't tell everyone's story. And, um, and I'm really proud of the work that I did there. And a lot of that work got carried through by successors and uh, the memorial to enslaved laborers um, was, you know, was a fundraising effort started by one of my team members. And it's, um, it's a beautiful and powerful place. And I know that uh, I know that Virginia is really committed to continuing to uh, to grapple with their legacy. Yeah, it had to be um, a fascinating kind of background to have and additional context and perspective in light of so many of the challenges around social justice that we've experienced this year. You had to feel like you were, um, um, I don't know, just extra, you know, connected to some of the, um, you know, some of the, the opportunities and challenges associated with all of that. Well, you know, certainly, um, you know, I mean, I, you know, I remember um, Rodney King and having grown up in the South, you know, for, you know, for people who are not yet at a place where they can kind of see systemic racism at work um, in, in our society, you know, they may not have had the experiences that I had in the South where, um, you know, there is, you know, there's just a distinct way of excluding people, particularly black people from certain parts of society and opportunity. And I think that the South has come a long way, but there are still many trouble spots. They're certainly not the only place that they're troublesome, but I remember real estate agents, you know, using this is a good school district as kind of code for this is a mostly white school. And it was very upsetting to, to me and to my family. Um, and I, you know, I still have a lot of work to do in that space as well. But being in Charlottesville when the Unite the Right rally happened was a true preview to some of what we saw on January 6th. And, um, and a, I think a real wake up call that we cannot ignore um, the fact that we have these really systemic barriers to access, as you said earlier, that's part of what drives us. You know, the public mission is part of access. Virginia and Boston College both uh, are committed to meeting 100% of demonstrated need, but there's we have to do more than that, right? And we have a real opportunity, I think, to do that. But I also want to be clear that an advancement, we've been talking about this almost since I've been in higher education advancement, and we have moved the needle in very small ways. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a good segue to one of the areas that you um, spoke to in your um, pre-podcast questionnaire, which was where is the advancement sector underinvesting? And you said we're clearly underinvested in talent management and DEI and J accountability. And could you just tell me a little bit more about your perspective there? Yeah, I mean, um, we're pretty good at getting what we measure and what we track and what we commit to doing uh, as, as goal-driven institutions. And, um, and we just have not made progress to diversify our teams. We know that when we survey our teams and you know, um, I know this from a consortium of colleagues that I've worked with that I went through leadership training with, and we, you know, we hear the same things when we survey our team members and we give them the opportunity to respond anonymously to what their experience is like, that they don't always feel welcome. We can still be really clicky. We are still really dependent upon our existing networks for hiring in the same way that we're really de dependent on existing networks for recruiting new volunteers um, and alumni to boards and, and, and things like that. And so if we're going to kind of in a deliberate and intentional way, you know, 
kind of fight what is like an echo box, right, of, you know, of talent recruitment, whether that's for volunteers or for donors or for speakers um, or for people that we're going to hire, we just have to expand our network and we have to, we have to disavow ourselves of the notion that somebody who's coming to us from a similar institution is best prepared to help us lead our institution into the new challenges that we are going to face. And, and if we don't, we're gonna leave an entire generation of alumni behind. We are already feeding the funnel of the disproportion of the, you know, where the gifts come in, right? Fewer and fewer gifts, lar larger from fewer and fewer donors. And we really have to do something. I, my colleague Cindy Frederick on one of your podcasts said philanthropy is about more than dollars and it is, you know, it's about um, love for humanity. And one of the ways that a university degree is valuable is through the ways that you get to connect with your alma mater and connect with your former classmates um, and shape that institution because you're involved. And so we, we just have to, we have to widen the net and we have to do it now. Well said, and I think, um, you know, I'm optimistic that the way that work is changing um, as a result of the pandemic could really support those objectives. And, you know, even in our own experience in, um, in building Evertrue, we're, we're thinking about the same issues as every leader is right now. And, you know, one of the, the opportunities that I'm excited about is just the, the, the way that remote work and additional uh, flexibility in, in where people work and how they work might allow us to change our networks, as you were saying, and to access different talent pools who in the past we simply might not have even attempted to attract because it was relying on somebody coming to 3, 330 Congress Street in the seaport in order to have the job. And so, you know, we've, um, even the way we're thinking about broadening our um, recruiting uh, efforts to be able to target um, HBCUs, for example, that in the past just geographically weren't well connected to New England um, would have been more challenging. And so I'm curious from where you sit, you know, I think already, I mean, tech, the tech sector, there was an amazing um, blog post that one of the leading investors in the software space put out recently, which is, uh, it was basically enterprise sales is never going back to the way it was. We're never going back to a bunch of sales reps sitting on a floor, hammering out phone calls, elbow to elbow from nine to five every day, which isn't necessarily the way advancement shops operate. But the, right. but the, the same comment was, um, you know, we're not going back to people getting on the plane to go do the demo all the time. And, um, and so I do think that there's this tension and opportunity of, well, when do things get back to normal? We talk to fundraisers all the time. We're like, I can't wait to get back out there and, and meet people. Um, on the other hand, we're seeing in the tech sector, people saying that's never going to happen again. And as a result, we can hire people uh, of more diverse backgrounds, wherever they are. We can engage prospects and customers uh, wherever they are. And what might that mean for both talent recruitment for a place like Boston College, but also uh, how you can engage uh, maybe underrepresented groups that aren't as, let's say, densely concentrated in the Northeast. And so that is one of the areas that I think higher education is going to struggle with because we are so focused on the campus, the grounds, the physical, beautiful spaces are a lot different than the office park that that tech company isn't going to renew their lease at. But how do you think about what that means for the future of a development team? I mean, will we have a world where someday half of BC's frontline fundraisers might not have a desk, you know, in Chestnut Hill? I you know, all of the best, um, I think all of the best fundraising institutions in the country right now are grappling with this question and starting to set up working groups and talking to their campus planners about how you plan for a kind of a work environment and what is the infrastructure for that work environment that we need to do well. Because I don't think that this is, this is not just about whether or not we get on planes and fly out to the West Coast and need to build trip density to make it worthwhile. Um, it's about the fact that we've seen better turnout for some types of events virtually, right? Because, because more than just people in, in Boston can, you know, or, yep. or people even right here in Boston, but don't want to deal with the Boston commute to make it over to Chestnut Hill um, or, you know, or the weather, 
right, um, are saying, well, I can tune in. And so we're going to have to figure out how to do hybrid offerings that still allow you to connect with the wonderful physical space. I think our physical spaces are always going to be important to us. Yeah. Um, I think the nostalgia will always be important to us, but this is another way that I think we're using, we're losing some of our young alumni because they are nostalgic. They did love their experience, but that doesn't motivate them to give in the same ways that it did previous generations. Maybe it will once they're at a certain age, but we need them on board with us now. And so we need to be thinking about impact-driven philanthropy. And that's a lot less um, just about the college experience and the, um, and the warm feeling that you get when you step on campus. I do think that there are some differences, right? We are asking people to do things with their disposable income and their disposable time, which is often you know, much more precious to them. Um, and that sometimes need, means that you need to be sitting face to face in a room with someone. Oftentimes people are doing things to honor family members that they've lost. They're, um, they're working through emotional decisions uh, through their philanthropy because they're addressing yeah. issues that affected them or affected family members. Um, and that sometimes takes something that we can't replace with technology. I do think our discovery work is gonna change. I also think our prospect work is gonna change organizing regionally, organizing around trips. You know, we should be getting to those people who, who are most ready to have those conversations sooner, regardless of where they are. And if it's a fruitful conversation, then sure we can jump on the plane or we can take the president. We can also get our president, our provost, our chancellors, uh, our faculty in the room a lot faster. Right. Oh, that's yeah. got to be such a difference versus like the logistics of figuring out when the president's going to go to the West Coast versus here's a Zoom link. I mean, what's that feel like in, in your role? That's got to be huge. Yeah, it's it's really um, it's really phenomenal. And we're really lucky that that, um, you know, our president, Father Leahy, is he's phenomenal in this format. Um, he's very comfortable um, he's warm and he's totally comfortable in it. And that has just been a huge boon because people have a lot more access to him and he's willing to take, you know, unscripted questions as they come. And, and that's just a really powerful tool. We can just, we can give you an experience that you probably couldn't have gotten if you had attended in person, because a lot of people would be waiting in line to kind of shake hands. Right. Right. No, I think, you know, we're getting a lot of questions. I just had a conversation with Matthew Lambert at uh, William and Mary yesterday about kind of the future of travel and the future of events. And I think that, I think that there's going to be just a different framework to evaluate. I think it's going to be, I think low ROI travel is gone. I, I really do. I, I don't think we're going to be able to justify low ROI, totally discovery, hoping that something pops on the West coast. I think we can, you know, if we can't have a quality qualification conversation over Zoom, if somebody won't even have the discussion, highly unlikely that it really is going to be that different if we show up and take them out to coffee in person. For the emotional, the gift planning, the estate, the transformational, that's high ROI travel. That needs to come back. It will come back. And maybe there will be hybrid approaches, which is you go physically and Father Leahy comes in via Zoom digitally there and so that you can create still that personal connection with far less cost and logistical challenge and i think the same thing around events there are certain types of events reunions you know football tailgates things that you cannot scale uh, virtually with with the same experience that need to come back that are truly unique and and take advantage of the physical space and there's probably a lot of low roi physical events that maybe can be done even better virtually because you can reach more people. It's less, uh, you know, costly, certainly less uh, time intensive. So I think that's going to be interesting to see how it all sort of shakes out. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, you know, Calif California, particularly LA was always a problem for us, right? I haven't, not, not a single institution that I've kind of, you know, worked closely with or worked for didn't struggle to be able to keep those meetings just because of the, right. challenge, the logistical challenges of getting around in, in Los Angeles. And so this kind of takes that off the table. Yeah. I think it'll accelerate some of our conversations um, in really powerful ways too, right? Because we don't need to say, okay, I'm going to be back in Los Angeles in, um, in three months. You know, can I see you again then? 
and then that's dependent on something not coming up that interferes with that timeline. You can say, this is great. I think I can pull this together for you in the next week to 10 days. Do you want to go ahead and get something on your calendar? You know, we've all got our phone right here. So we don't even have to kind of scroll behind right. the Zoom screen. So I, I do think our work is going to, it's going to be transformed. I think we're going to have to be really nimble. We just had a leadership retreat, Brent, where we talked about this. We have, we have to solve for the short term and the short term is still uncertain in some really important ways as it relates to events and how we get to the end of the year and um, how the vaccine rolls out. But we can't stop strategic planning right. because it, it's just gonna be critical that we put our priority on those things that are most impactful in our organizations and that we prepare our staff for the fact that they're not coming back to a work environment that was exactly how they left it. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, taking a maybe the most extreme example or one of the most extreme opportunities is think about international fundraising and what the potential could be, right? When it used to be, we go to London once a year or every three years or whatever it may be, when we're a Zoom link away from every key prospect in London and Father Leahy's a Zoom link away and every, you know, the chancellor and the provost and you name it, I don't think anybody has had time to really even take a deep breath and think about what is the future of international discovery. But that's one of the areas that I'm really excited about um, because um, the world has gotten even flatter and we're instantly right there with anybody and, um, you know, who's not coming back and we're not going to see them and we never really were. So, you know, that to me seems like an area where it's almost pure upside, unlike what do we do in our local market in Boston where we've kind of always done it this one way with the events and how does that all change? That's a hard, that's a hard kind of balance to strike, but I'm curious about your, your take, not just on kind of hard to reach physical um, destinations in the United States, but, but globally, uh, have you given that any thought or have you had any experiences yet? Yeah, we, uh, we absolutely, that's one of the places that we have actually gone ahead and made some important kind of organizational changes to accommodate for. Um, it hasn't been enough time to bear out, but just through, you know, through no deliberate decisions, we had the two people who were in those international roles for us, uh, you know, move into different positions. And it gave us a chance to re rethink that. We still felt like we needed someone who was a sophisticated fundraiser that would carry an international portfolio and do some of that work. But then we also realized we could distribute those portfolios among our more senior uh, fundraising team who you know, would normally be organized geographically. Yeah. And so we've got a real opportunity to say, again, you know, who are the people that we always wish we had more time with, but we just can't get there enough. Yeah. And can we get them with somebody who knows how to navigate our senior leadership, you know, on our side and is a really thoughtful fundraiser and can navigate um, kind of the cultural differences depending on where in the world we're working. And so we've, we've started to make those moves. So we're, you know, we had the two positions, we're replacing it more with like a senior philanthropic advisor and then, um, and then we'll distribute more of that portfolio across the um, across the university. And and yeah, if if there's going to be a hard, uh, you know, a high ROI trip that needs to happen, then yep. we'll you know we'll do that after we've kind of gathered that intelligence. Yeah, and I think that's where, you know, when you think about the the lower ROI trips, even internationally, that might have happened in the past, um, if we now can distribute those uh, prospective donors to the rest of the maybe more senior fundraising team. We can engage them remotely and we don't have to spend 3,000 or 5,000 or $10,000 to get overseas and hotels and planes and, and see them physically. How can we take that 3,000, 5,000 or $10,000 and reinvest it into an amazing donor experience? You know, would they rather have you spend $5,000 to go see them and have lunch, or would they rather have a 30 minute Zoom call with Father Leahy or somebody else that would be high impacted? Like that's, I think, part of the trade-off where we've got an opportunity to not only reduce some of that budget or, or spend, but then reinvest it in things that maybe are higher impact to the donor anyway, um, and certainly are uh, able to free up a lot more time um, than it would take to go do those trips. So. It's, it's, it's exciting to see where that could all shake out. 
it, it is. And we're, we're grappling with the different ways that we might go about doing that. And then, you know, kind of, um, building the habits, you know, for our fundraising team to, um, to immediately think if I'm stuck, who can I talk to about who might be the right person to pull into this yeah. meeting? Cause that's true of our colleagues right here in advancement as well. Right. It means that Jim Hassan and I, you know, are much more accessible than we would be under normal circumstances. Yeah. It means that if, you know, we have a centralized team, but if you need your liaison from the school in the room with you, because somebody's really interested in something and you're, you're a broad generalist, it's, you know, it's like a, let me, you know what, let me see if I can, if I can get Maria right, right here um, on the zoom with us or, or um, if she'd be willing to schedule some time. So I, well, any, I think there's a any lot memorable, of memorable. Yeah, <laughs> no, I think that's a, another great ad advantage is instead of it being the one-to-one -one relationship building, it's more now as a development professional, or the prospect manager, if you will, how can I be more of an orchestrator, right? How can I bring in the other key people around campus that um, collectively can really inspire a given uh, donor to, to, to do the, you know, what's possible. And I feel like that's really going to be part of the changing role is it's not just me sitting across one-on-one -on -one and wowing you. And obviously there's always some collaborative aspects of fundraising, but that idea that you can now just add a couple more people to the Zoom invite as long as schedules are free can really change the donor experience, right? I mean, do you have any collaborative Zoom, I don't know, success stories that you'd be willing to share? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, we're, uh, we've got a, an upcoming meeting this week with a small advisory, um, you know, kind of council of one of our boards. And, you know, normally for something that small, you know, there's, it's seven people and me and Jim, we wouldn't be able to get, you know, the provost and the president and, um, you know, and our EVP in the room, but we're going to be able to do that. And that's going to be really highly consequential. You know, they're, yeah. they're probably going to, you know, invest 30 minutes of their time total to be there, but it's going to, you know, it's going to feel like you're in the room because they're, yes. it's not a big audience. They're going to be able to ask them anything that they want to ask. And they are the voices that go out and are, you know, interacting and um, leading various parts of that other body. So that's a, you know, just one of many ways that you can, you yeah. can imagine doing this. And we have a lot to learn. Though I will, you know, uh, credit to, to Jim, because when this was all happening and it was like, what, you know, I was like, well, we just, you know, we're going to have to, we're going to have to pick up the phone. We're not going anywhere for a while. And he said, isn't that how we used to do it? <laughs> so it's a good reminder, right? That we didn't always have these really big, um, you know, frontline fundraising teams that travel. Right. We spent a lot of time on the phone um, and we made, you know, we did good work on the phone before we, you know, we had the resources to always be able to go see people. I love it. Well said. Um, well, you mentioned Jim a couple of times. I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, one of the recurring themes on this uh, show for sure is just the importance of mentorship. And I know you've cited Jim as a mentor. Um, just tell me a little bit about mentorship that you've benefited from, who some of your key mentors are, um, and then also, you know, how you think about maybe serving as a mentor now in a leadership role. Yeah, I, you know, mentorship is, um, it's so important. And it's one of the, I think it's one of the critical necessities for doing really good um, inclusion and justice work, right? Because I, you know, everything that I learned and I know about advancement, I got from observing others uh, passively or from them actively saying, no, do it this way. Um, Jim is a great mentor and he was, um, he was someone I wanted to work with and learn from. And it was, it was, you know, part of the reason I made the decision to come to Boston college, but Mark Llewellyn at UVA was a phenomenal mentor. And, um, in a lot of ways we had a lot of natural synergies, but the ways in which we disagreed and the ways that we managed and worked through those disagreements when I was working for Mark, you know, were some of the most, um, you know, some of the kind of most insightful moments of my career, you know, and then sometimes you just have to say, okay, we disagree, but you're, you know, you're the boss and learning and knowing and being able to articulate why you have a different viewpoint on it or why you see the data in a different way 
um, that only comes from having somebody who's willing to kind of engage with you in a, in a very direct way. You know, likewise, Mark and I both work for Dave Lieb at Penn State, and I have continued to rely on, on Dave heavily as I have made decisions or, um, you know, run into a conundrum. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't work as directly with Rod Kirsch, but he was a great leader at Penn State. And of course, I, I worked with Scott Rabinald, who was at Tennessee for many years and is now at, at Texas and still sometimes text him or pick up the phone and, um, and, and need to rely on that. And we need to make sure that when we're mentoring others, that we're not just gravitating again to kind of the, kind of the lunch table, you know, this is somebody I have a natural synergy yeah. with, right? We need to extend our mentorship out to, and we need to be aware of it, right? As we look across our organization, who is kind of being left out of the equation because they might not fit in as naturally with a particular um, kind of experience that kind of connects some people. Maybe they didn't play sports with these groups who are all former athletes and things. And we need to make sure that we're coaching our teams in deliberate ways to invite their colleagues that they wouldn't normally um, to lunch or to a cup of coffee or to connect with. And then we as leaders need to make sure that we are reaching deep into the organization and saying, who are the people that I can learn from because they're not like me, right? Because as I said earlier, some of the, it, you know, I will learn from everybody that I, you know, that I work with regardless of their position or level of experience or, you know, or how they came into our organization. And that perspective is going to be what helps us catch the things that are, that might seem tone deaf when we're communicating to broad yeah. audiences, um, because we've got somebody there that, that is looking at it from a different life experience than we have. And that's the, those are the people who are going to be able to help us have some of the more difficult conversations. And so we have a lot to learn from people who don't come from the same kinds of institutions and didn't have the exact same career trajectory or even college experience that we had. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that many people miss from the office experience, um, especially maybe people that are earlier career, et cetera, is the social aspect. It is the water cooler or the, the lunch table um, talk. But, um, and so we've been thinking about even at Evertree, like how do we kind of replicate some of that, but also maybe do so in a more intentional way so that it, it, is, it is creating new connections and relationships that maybe don't organically form in the in-office environment. So we've just started using a tool, it's a Slack tool that's become pretty popular called Donut. And basically mm -hmm. if you opt into it, um, every two weeks you're automatically paired with a random colleague for lunch. It kind of automatically creates the calendar invitation. My meeting right after our podcast uh, concludes is actually a donut meeting with one of my new colleagues um, who recently joined. And so that's, I think, another example of something that um, hopefully can create some of the same benefits and connectivity of the water cooler or the lunch table, but maybe with a more inclusive and um, um, kind of well-orchestrated uh, matching system, if that makes sense. I don't know if you've had any experiences uh, like that, trying to keep your team connected. Yeah, we, you know, we have, you know, manufactured some things. We did trivia for a while. We're really mindful right now. of. Tri you know, I mean, let's be honest. Trivia's had a great year. Trivia, trivia. was big in 2020. Trivia, trivia saved the early, the early part of the, you know, go home and stay home part of the pandemic for sure. Um, we, you know, we have you know, we have tried, we've thought about the ways too in which we do meetings and kind of pulling different speakers in and making sure we're, we're highlighting all parts of the organization that might not normally be, you know, um, visible or that might be, you know, easy to lose sight of in an environment like this, right? We want to make sure we're, we're so heavily dependent on the great work that our operations and research team do. And, um, and we have been, we've been able to continue to have a successful fundraising year, you know, last year and this year so far. And we couldn't have done that without a great support team. And some of those people have been, never went home, right? And so we are also right. um, in different places. But, um, but I love the tip on, on donut. I'm going to try it. I'm a big fan of donuts in general. So, um, <laughs> so great name because I would definitely yeah, no. accept an invitation to go have a donut with someone. It's, it's, it's well done for sure. Um, 
I, I do want to ask, you've talked about the idea of impact fundraising or impact driven fundraising as being a, something, you know, you believe in and a trend you're excited about. You also referenced um, kind of the importance of social media as a fundraising tool. And certainly we've seen the growth of social media, the role it's played in things like giving days and so forth. But we've also, and, and ever true, we've been champions for the potential uh, for social media to really drive major gift fundraising as well. You did cite this recent Barstool Fund campaign, and I'm really glad you brought it up. I've been following it. Um, I, I can't stop uh, just sort of being so fascinated with, with the work that they've done. And for those of you who aren't familiar, uh, Dave Fortnoy runs Barstool Sports. It's definitely a controversial platform in some regards, but they have uh, gone above and beyond recently to really uh, raise money that they're then directly distributing to small businesses that are being affected by the pandemic. And um, I actually texted my, my, a couple of my marketing colleagues about two weeks ago, Amy, and I was like, this, like we need, like we should be doing this. I was like, first of all, Evertrue should be doing this and we should be identifying students who are struggling and we should be raising money and we should be FaceTiming them and we should be awarding the grants. And I, I look at what, what Barstool has done and it's the student emergency fund for small businesses, restaurants, et cetera. Every college we work with has launched some kind of student emergency fund. Nobody has elevated the student voices and brought the authenticity that Barstool has. And I just got to ask you, I mean, you followed it, you referenced it. Why aren't we FaceTiming students recording it? Granted, there's you know privacy and we'd need to yeah. make sure they were okay with it. But like the emotion that he is evoking from these small business owners is the same emotion we could be evoking, which then creates the social media flywheel, which makes more donors want to get excited. And I just feel like there's something we can learn from. It's one thing to raise money for small businesses. It's another thing to do it and then market it in such an authentic way. Yeah. And I, you know, and that's really the trick for us too, because we got so good at getting super polished, right. And you know, so polished, higher education. So polished, yeah. And uh, you know, I think healthcare fundraising suffers from this a little bit too, right? And we've we've lost kind of our our authenticity and that, and some of the passion. And you know, there is a great tool out there. Um, thank Thank View is, you know, I I can will never forget, you know, like opening an email from the University of Tennessee, and there was like a student looking right at me, and she said my name, and it was obviously it was recorded, right? And um, but the thing is, is like, you know, some, um, some of the smaller nonprofits and the really savvy social media driven businesses, they've already kind of a leap ahead of that, right? With yeah. these kind of live, live FaceTime calls. And I think that that's another way that we will, you know, that we will have to be deliberate in how we stretch. And then we also have to acknowledge the cultures of our institutions, right? Because, right. um, you know, different different institutions will have different levels of comfort with that. And very much to your point, you know, it, you know, it could never be done in a way where the student felt exploited or that somebody would be concerned that, you know, that we weren't, um, that we weren't careful about that. And so I think there's a lot, there's a lot to work out on that, but I absolutely convinced, you know, I can't stop watching those videos because it's just unfolding live, you know, and somebody's, this is, you know, this is a lifeline. It's, it's somebody threw me the lifesaver and I didn't even know it was, it was coming. And, you know, and we've got to demonstrate impact. Yeah. We're, we're, yeah. we're kind of getting, you know, we're kind of getting our tails kicked by some really like some smaller nonprofits that are really nimble and able to be super transparent and clear and, and say, when you give me X, when you give us X, this happens and you can see it happen. Yeah, I think there's there's a spectrum as well, which is today, let's say that we default to really polished, very much driven by the cultures of the organization. On the other end of the spectrum is Dave Portnoy FaceTiming somebody totally ad hoc and uh, and then putting it on the Internet for millions of people to see. And I feel like even in between, though, you know, what about, um, you know, what about a more private version of that that you could then show as a video in a donor conversation, hey, these are some of the students that have really been recipients of your scholarship, right? Like it's so much different than the scholarship luncheon where we all get together and have the chicken or the, 
letter that somebody gets that's a form letter saying thank you so much for your scholarship so it's like maybe we don't pivot all the way to barstool fund but how do we kind of push the envelope a little bit more to make it fun to make it authentic and oh by the way a lot of our donors are watching Barstool too. He's on CNBC every other week. He's on different media platforms all the time. So it's not like they don't know and consume that themselves. And that when they look at, you know, institutional content, it needs to be this buttoned up and polished, right? You know, and, and the other piece of this too is, you know, those, those impact stories, um, you know, we need to do a better job of that at the really, you know, really large scale philanthropy as well. And so you, you know, kind of alluded to, you know, custom experiences for our donors. And I think there is a real opportunity. We, you know, we used to, we used to maybe put a book of pictures together and send that. There's a way to really, you know, now use the technology at hand to send a, you know, a video yes. uh, montage of, you know, of ways that gifts have changed our, uh, our campuses or our students' experiences. I love it. Um, really well said. Well, Amy, I do have to get to this donut meeting here, so we're going to need to wrap. But um, if people, you know, one, are you hiring? And two, if people want to stay in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Um, yes, we're hiring. We were able to move forward with a handful of, um, of positions. So, um, so please, you know, come to, you know, bc.edu. Um, and, and follow the advancement links and look at those positions. If you wanna get in touch with me, I'm on, um, I'm on LinkedIn, amy.yancey at bc.edu, um, email me and certainly you can find me on you know, Instagram and Facebook too. Love it. Uh, amy, it's really been a privilege. I uh, wish you the best as we all continue to navigate uh, the challenges of 2020, 2021 here um, but I think your um, enthusiasm and positivity around the continued importance of access to education is more on display in almost any arena that you might look at at this point. And we share your passion and commitment uh, to the sector uh, and really just want to thank you for sharing your story. Thank you, Brent. I'm really glad that our, you know, you as a partner, Evertrue, is so focused on this topic. It's important. It's going to take all of us um, to, you know, to make appreciable change. So thank you so much. Thanks, Amy. Best wishes. Mm -hmm.